So first and foremost, I want to thank uh, Ora, and I want to thank Seed, and I want to thank Tal for making this event and for allowing me to participate, and particularly, as I mentioned, Rabbi Tawil, who actually brought me in and uh, gives me the opportunity to be here in London. Uh, I, you know, I'm always uh, delighted to be in London and uh, how much I enjoy it. And uh, um, to be able to participate in this program is, is such a tremendous thing. And as was pointed out already, when something happens, it demands a response. It demands a response. I'll give you an example. Um, the Rashi asks, what did Yaakov do that caused Dina to be kidnapped by Shem? And he explains there was something that Yaakov did wrong. And when you think about it, it's a little strange because Rashi says right at the beginning of the story what Dina did wrong. So why do you have to find something wrong that Yaakov did? And the answer is, and, and it's, it's a profound uh, observation, when a tragedy hits, it doesn't just hit the person. It hits the person, it hits their parents, it hits their children, it hits their community. The Grantina says, a certain tragedy hits a community, you have to make a public fast day. You know, and, and there's concentric circles, and it moves out more and more and more. I live in uh, Harnof, on one of the quietest streets in Yerushalayim, it's called Rechov Agassi. Yeah, I, I, it's a little ironic because the day before, my neighbor said to me, you know, someone asked me, he says, aren't you nervous to live in Israel? He says, I live in the quietest community in the world, Harnof, on the quietest street at Gassi. We don't even have buses going down there, you know, it's such a quiet street. And the next day, of course, the tragedy happened. And um, I give a share every other Motsi Shabbos in, in Harnof. And when I had an opportunity, I wanted to speak about what took place. And I said, I have to tell you the truth. Although this is a tragedy for everybody, I feel it touches us more as the Anglo community in, in, in Harnof. Because these people were all Anglos from Harnof. And I said this over to, a, uh, to an Israeli, and he became very offended. And he says, what do you mean? You think this is only you and not us? You think this doesn't also affect us as much as it affects you? Why? Because they were all Americans or Canadians or Englishmen? So you think it doesn't affect us the same way it does you? And he was very offended. And I said, no, I don't think it does. But, um, you know, I, I, I felt like the closer you are to it, the more you, re you recognize it, the more it's meaningful. And yet there are concentric circles. And yes, it continues to radiate out. And every one of us is touched Everybody is touched by something that happens to us as Klal Yisrael. You know, uh, they ask the question, you know, you Jews, you charge non-Jews interest, but you don't charge Jews interest. Why isn't that racist? So I said, you have a problem with banks? You have a problem with people lending interest? You're okay with lending interest? When you borrow a loan from the bank, do you yell at them while you're charging interest? He says, no, of course, it's normal to charge interest. He says, we charge interest to everybody. But you don't have to charge your brother. And if I really recognized that you were my brother, then I wouldn't charge you interest. Because, you know, my brother wanted to make a loan on his house, you know, and he wanted to borrow money from me. And I said, only if there's no interest. And uh, he refused to borrow the money, unless he could pay me interest, you know. I ended up having to... to you know, right ahead to Iska, only because otherwise he would not take the money from me, you know, and he would have to pay more at a bank, you know, but I, I should charge my brother interest, you know? 
Woody Allen once said, you know, he's looking at this watch. He says, you see this watch? This was my grandfather's watch. On his deathbed, he sold me this watch. You know what I mean? <laughs> you understand? It's, it's, you know, to family, that's, that's inappropriate. You know what I mean? You don't do that. You know? So we're family. We're family. And therefore, when a tragedy hits, it hits all of us. And all of us have to do something. I'm, by the way, repeating everything that Nina said, but I'm just saying it from a different point of view. Yeah? Um, the Gemara says the following din. You're not allowed to wear hobnailed boots on Shabbos. Yeah? Uh, boots with nails in it. Why? There was a time that there was Jews who were hiding out in a cave, whether it was the time of the Greeks or the Romans, there was a discussion. And they were hiding in a cave and somebody was walking with the, the nail boots on top of the cave and they heard the sound and they thought the soldiers were coming for them and they all run out of the cave and people were trampled to death. And because of that, they answered wearing hobnailed boots on Shabbos. What's it got to do with anything? And the Gemara says, because the incident happened on Shabbos. And if something happens on Shabbos, it's not by chance. And so therefore, even though there's no connection between wearing a hobnailed boots on Shabbos, but because this Misa happened on Shabbos, that's the reason that we answered on Shabbos. So because this happened on Shabbos, then obviously it means that we have to be Mechazek Shabbos. And was already pointed out, this is a particular weakness. And it was alluded to. But there was an article uh, in the New York Jewish Week where there is a term for this already. It's called Half Shabbos. This is, these are people who keep Shabbos, but they text. And they cannot help themselves. Yeah? People are addicted to it to the point that they cannot stop texting on Shabbos. I used to see people who were chain smokers. But on Shabbos, they stopped smoking. They were able to stop smoking. And these people can't stop texting. Yeah? Um, it was years ago. Uh, my kids were all little. And there was somebody uh, in a particular seminary came over for Shabbos. And they were watching my kids. And they said, wow, your kids love Shabbos. So I said, uh, yeah, kids are supposed to hate Shabbos. That's a given. Shabbos is a time of don'ts. Shabbos is a time when I can't. Shabbos is a time when, you know, I lived, uh, I lived in a building when I first met Aliyah. There was a very choshva avreich who lived downstairs for me. And uh, he tells me once, he says, my little boy comes over to me and he says, Tati, I love Shabbos. He was English. Tati, I love Shabbos. So, you know, he pats himself on the back, you know, and he says, uh, tell me, why do you love Shabbos? The Orlovskis have a Shabbos party. <laughs> he says, so I realized that maybe I'm putting the, you know, the wrong emphasis on the wrong points, you know. It's, it's got to be something where people say, this is wonderful. I used to run a youth organization. Uh, and I made Shabbatinim, sometimes for secular kids and sometimes for, um, you know, uh, observant kids. And when I made it for secular kids, we always ran late. You know, we would have a Shalashudas, sing songs, tell stories, and I ran late. When I did it for the yeshiva kids, they were checking their watches every two minutes. Isn't Shabbos over? Isn't it over? Why are we still doing this? You know? When is it over? we got to get out of here, you know? <sighs> Rabbi uh, Kaufman, the Rashiva of Waterbury, he said something once on a Tishabov. It, it made a profound impression on me. He said, my parents may not have been as mitzvah observant as many people are today, but they had something you don't see today. 
They were proud Jews. And, and that, that resonated with me. What does that mean to be a proud Jew? Yeah? So uh, my father-in-law, Al-Vashalom, he, lived in a, he went to a shul where it was an aging population. And so the Rav, to his credit, made a real effort to bring in younger people. And my father-in-law, who was, you know, from obviously a different generation, um, he, uh, he said, I don't know. I see these guys come in for Shabbos. And then we have a kiddush. And they bring all these fancy bottles of scotch. And they walk home after the kiddush drunk. They drink to the point where they're staggering out of shul. He says, and everyone knows that Jews don't drink. So how do you explain this? I said, must be they're not Jews. If Jews don't drink and they all go, what got to do? Must be they're not Jews. He goes, oh, you can't say that. I said, what do I mean? I mean that what it means, that foundation that Jews don't do, we don't have that anymore. We're very good at keeping mitzvahs, but do we have a sense of what it means to be a yid? That's for a yid? A guy doesn't do that? A yid doesn't go there? A yid doesn't dress that way? A yid doesn't talk that way? Feh! <laughs> you never heard that from a parent or a grandparent. Feh! You know, we don't talk that way. We don't, we don't act this way. There, there, was, there was a way that a Jew conducted themselves. Rembrandt and the great Dutch masters, they used to draw pictures of Jews. And they said, because when you looked at a Jew, you saw nobility. You saw that there was somebody who was on a higher level, the way they conducted themselves, their, their scrupulousness in honest business dealings. Yeah. Anyway, a, a lot of different things that defined what a Jew was, and you don't see it anymore. People were very careful with mitzvahs, you know. Um, the things that we take pride in, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing. Is it, is it because I'm a Yid? Is it because I'm a Jew? Or is it today you can be a Jew and do anything? You know? Uh, there's a particular publication um, that uh, there are some people who have a problem with. And, uh, and uh, one of my kids once asked one of her teachers, what's your problem with that particular you know, publication? He says, because they never write about from people. They write about a from astronaut. You know, they write about a from skydiver. <laughs> from this, from that. But this being from itself, that's not impressive enough. You know, we got to do something where it's choshev out there. But just the fact that I, that, that I appreciate who I am. And so therefore, Shabbos becomes a time when we're very good at working with the, the minutia and the details. But the feeling, the gefeel of a Shabbos, so we have to look at it from this point of view. Shabbos is an opportunity. Every seven days, there is a wave of Kedusha that fills the world. We are surrounded by Kedusha. We don't feel it, obviously. Yeah? A lot of people will tell me, I keep Shabbos, and I don't feel anything special. So I point out, right now, there's beautiful music playing in the room. How many people hear the music? Nobody, Baruch Hashem. Sometimes I speak to audiences and they're like, yeah, I hear the music, man. I was like, okay. <laughs> That's a bigger problem. But okay, we don't hear the music. But you know there's music, right? There's radio waves moving through this room, playing beautiful music, yeah? Uh, you can't hear it. Okay, because you don't have a receiver. 
So you get out, you buy yourself a radio, and you turn it on, and well, you hear a static. Now, if it was modern Jewish music, you might confuse that, you understand, for the same thing. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm a cranky old man. <laughs> what can I tell you? I've reached that age where we look forward to the sphere in the three weeks. But anyway... <laughs> It's like, you know, do you remember when people used to play music? That's a lost art. You know, now people blast it. You know what I mean? You know, and you hear like some song, like, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, it's like, oh, whoa, you know, people blasting this music. It's unbelievable. It's, uh, you know, music is, is something of a lost art. But anyway, but, uh, you know, you hear static. That can't be the music, you know. So you need a tuner. And the tuner will filter out all the background noise. And now you can hear the music. Yeah? It's the same thing with Shabbos. The Kedusha is playing, but you can't hear it. Why? Because of all the background noise. They did a study of a thousand students around the world. Not Jews. And they took them off of all of their technology for a week, and they went through the same withdrawal symptoms as a person coming off of cocaine. You know, it, it, it's, it's addictive. It's an unbelievable thing. Uh, those of us who have had to drive with a teenager who's texting, you know, and you're literally taking your life in your hands, you know, and they're sure that they can do it, you know, because you don't actually have to look at the road the whole time. You know, it's like, cars going straight, roads going straight. You know, it's like, you know. <laughs> and I don't have to tell you how many tragedies have happened because of this, but they, they can't stop. You, can't, you have to respond. You have to respond. You know, it's, it's, it's something that demands our immediate attention. You know? You ever hear the awe in a person's voice when the phone rings? It's the phone. Yes, it is. Aren't you going to answer it? No. I'm sitting here talking to a real person. Why would I stop talking to you to answer the phone? Why do I... The only thing better than that is where they have like call waiting, you know? Wait a second, it's somebody else. They might be more important than you. You know? And then you're on hold for a while. They go, sorry, that was an important call. <laughs> I was Erev... Oh, it was an Erev. A few days before Yantav, I'm in the butcher shop. And the wine is out the door. And every time the phone rings, he picks up the phone, he picks up the phone, and answers the phone. And he's taking, taking phone orders. But there's real people standing here. So help me, I walked out to the phone, I made the phone call, I called in my order. You know what I mean? <laughs> so what am I, crazy? I'm going to sit there and wait online? You know what I mean? But the phone's ringing, that's more important, you know? We turn, we turn, and we miss people. I'm not speaking about anybody here, and I'm sure nobody here has ever had this experience. I just know that sometimes when I go out to eat with my wife, I'll see two, you know, seminary girls, or I'll see two married women, and they went out to dinner together, and they're both talking to somebody else on their phone. (laughs) And I'm just watching, this is amazing, you know. And I would not be doing this if the waitress came to me, but she's on her phone. Eventually I get her number and I call her, hi, table six, you think you could, you know. And it's just, it's just everywhere. So we say, stop. And turn it off. You know, don't check your email. <laughs> don't check your WhatsApp. Don't, don't check it. You know, this girl, this girl says to her friend, you know, so what are you up to? So I'll tell you the truth. I got rid of Facebook. I got rid of my texting. I got rid of my internet account. I got rid of my WhatsApp. I got rid of, I got rid of everything. I disconnected. 
He says, then what do you do? He says, what do you mean? Now I have a life. She says, can I use it in Candy Crush? <laughs> if you don't know, it's a game where you can send people lives. Anyway, but, uh, but the point is like, you know, what else do you need a life for except for a game? <laughs> you know? So, so comes, now I'm supposed to feel Kedusha. I'm supposed to feel Kedusha. I can't even focus on a regular person that I'm talking to because I keep checking my phone. You know? So turn it off. Turn off all, turn off everything. You know? I had a friend of mine who was a Shiva, and he made rules, you know, not to use your phone in the base Madrush, and nobody was listening, and this and that. And he says, when I saw that the Rebbeim were taking phone calls during Seder, he says he went out and he invested on one of those cell phone blockers, put it on the roof of the base Madrush. There was no reception. No one could figure out why. <laughs> Uh, that wasn't the problem. The neighbors started to complain. <laughs> so the range was too big. <laughs> and other people were disconnected, you know. So uh, there, there was a story when uh, the hurricane hit New York and everybody lost electricity, you know. So people broke into people's houses, not just to rob it, but to recharge their phone. <laughs> <laughs> electricity. I, I could steal all your money, but that doesn't help me if I can't recharge my phone. <laughs> and that's how they caught him. <laughs> he was still in the house recharging his phone when they came home. Because <laughs> that was more important, you know? Yeah, uh, how, how do we turn off all the noise? Don't go shopping. Yeah? Uh, many of you are at the age where driving is still enjoyable. You know? You think it's very exciting. And you're always jingling your car keys. Jingle, jingle, jingle. Let's go someplace. Let's go to the mall and put your face on a mug. You know what I mean? Let's do something. We gotta go somewhere. Mom, you need me to pick up any groceries? You know what I mean? I go somewhere, you need me to drive uh, anybody? You know? I've got a car. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're so excited. We go off someplace. Mm. Put down the car keys. <gasps> no. <laughs> put down the car keys. You know, you can't cook anything. Turn off the microwave, turn off everything, you know. I have to say the microwave now, you know. People used to use an oven, but now, you know, it's microwave, you know. People are like, you know how long it takes to make microwave popcorn? <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's terrible, you know. We used to fill up a pan with oil and put it inside and have it pop all over the place, you know. Like, you never have to stick the bag in the microwave, you know what I mean? How long does it take? They had these... They had these things that they were marketing in America were like macaroni and cheese and things like that in little tubes that just stick in the microwave, rip it off and suck it. Right? And they haven't got time. You know? People walk into their house, they open the refrigerator, it's bursting. There's nothing to eat! There's nothing here! <laughs> well, why don't you take this? Takes too long to prepare. I need something I could just pop in my mouth, you know, without even having to pause. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, just rip it open. You ever see somebody think of, uh, think of cookies and rip it open, you know, just grab a bunch? Ah. <laughs> I've talked to teenage girls, you don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure, you know, because then you won't be able to fit into that anorexic outfit you bought, so you have to give up eating if you want to do that, so. But guys don't have that problem. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's like, we need it now. No, you're not going to cook. You're not going to shop. You're not going to this. You're not going to turn off everything. Cut out all the noise. How can you hear Kedusha? How can you hear anything if you're surrounded with all this noise? And then we do the mitzvah sase. 
You know, we have what a Shabbos meal is supposed to be, and we have what Zemiras are supposed to be, and we have everything that we're supposed to do. And we use that, we can start to tune in. I should point out there's two more steps. And, and these two steps are really crucial, and they're not always uh, stressed. You also have to listen. If you turn, turn on the radio, it's the most beautiful music. If you leave the room, it's not going to help. People say, I keep Shabbos, and I don't hear anything. You know, a girl said this to me once. I said, well, tell me what your Shabbos is like. You know, well, I wait for my dad to come home from shul, and uh, we make Kiddush. He falls asleep at the table reading the paper. And in the winter, I can be in bed by like six. You open the window a crack, it's a little cold. Put on your fuzzy socks. And you can be out like forever. It's like being dead, you know? Just lie there with drool coming out. And then you're not used to sleeping so much. You get up at four o'clock in the morning, you go to the kitchen, you make a little snack, you read a little something, go back to bed, wake up about 11, catch the end of davening, you know, come back home, have lunch, grab one last nap, and before you know it, it's over. Oh, what a spiritual odyssey. The way most people keep Shabbos, it's indistinguishable from a coma, you know? I, just, I slept the whole time and I don't know why I didn't feel anything, you know? Of course not. What are you going to feel? You're unconscious. I could be playing the most beautiful music and if you're sleeping through it, you're not going to appreciate it. You have to listen. And sometimes you need a course in music appreciation. You understand? I, 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 uh, I travel in, in all types of circles, being a world-famous speaker. And um, that's what I do for a living. A world-famous speaker means someone with no job, just in case you don't know. Anyway, but I travel among, you know, very, very wealthy people who I really enjoy being with because they like to buy me things. So, um, but sometimes I go to one of these parties and it's like a wine and cheese party. You know, now a wine and cheese party, you know, that means nothing to my teenage kids. You know, tell me you're giving me crisps and, and grape juice. That sounds already interesting. Or Coke, you know, it's something I can have, you know. Dry red wine, the heck, <laughs> and a cheese. It smells. It's bitter. It's because you didn't take a course. You take a course to appreciate wine. You know, swirl and sniff and sip and spit. And, you know, and, you know, and look at the texture and just the right amount of tannins. You know, there's a whole chachma to appreciating a glass of wine. There's no chachma to appreciating coke. <laughs> you know. Pull the tab. <laughs> ah, you know, instantaneous. You know, it's great, you know. And uh, it's, not, it's not really very complex, right? Neither, neither are crisps, you know what I mean? But cheeses, there's all kinds of different levels and understandings and flavors and nuances. But you have to learn what that is. So could you imagine that I'm, you know, it says Revolba. When you get to... This world is the entrance way to Olam Haba. Why? Because if you don't understand how to appreciate Ruchnius in this world, when you get up to the next world, it's all Ruchnius. You won't know what it is. You're going to be looking for the potato chips and the coke, and it's not there. You know, you're going to be looking for, for you know, for, uh, you know uh, some delicious food and, and, and a facial. You know what I mean? And they don't have them up there, you know? And you're looking, you know, you want to go shopping, you know? They don't have that. It's all spiritual pleasure. If you don't learn how to appreciate it now, you won't understand it later. So Shabbos is something that's ruchnius. I have to understand what that is. How do I gain an appreciation for something that's a greater level of pleasure? 
I have to study it. I have to learn it. You know, if you if you've ever listened, I don't know if you, if, you, if you've taken a course in music. You know, take a course in music. You can listen to a piece of music, a classical piece of music, and you're hearing layers and layers of different meanings and feelings, and you know, and you can hear all the different instruments. But if you don't know, you won't hear the difference. You know? you'll listen to the typical Jewish song with four chords and uh, that's as much as you know. You know, you, you don't hear the contrast. You don't hear the, the power in it because you don't know how to appreciate it. You don't know what to look for. I had a guy when I was in yeshiva. He was learning how to play the trumpet. Today he's a very well-known uh, trumpet player in America uh, in, in Jewish bands. Um, when he was practicing during his year in Eretz we used to lock him in the clot and uh, you know because we didn't want to hear it but I remember you know a, a, a new album would come out and go did you hear that they had a French horn did you hear that they had this instrument that no we didn't hear anything you know but he was listening to the same music we were but he had a whole different appreciation we have to take a course in Kedusha appreciation. We have to understand what these things mean otherwise we'll be listening to the beautiful music and we won't know what we're hearing Let's talk about just an idea about Shabbos, and that is that Shabbos is a period of time. It's seven days. Yeah? Um, a Shavua is seven days. And forget about Shabbos for a moment, right? We count during this period of time, Sheva Shabbosos, seven weeks. But you know, they're not really weeks, they don't start on Sunday. They, they might start on Sunday, but they can start any day you want, you know? And because of that, when you start counting it, you know, you have to get it to understand that it's a Shavuot. A Shavuot is the only unnatural period of time that exists. A day is how long it takes the earth to rotate on its axis. A year is how long it takes the earth to revolve around the sun. A month is how long it takes the moon to revolve around the earth. Yeah? And what's a week? Seven days. Based on what? Because there's Briya Sa'olam. But if there's no Briya Sa'olam, there's no sense of a week. It's a seven-day period. What is this time? What is this period of time? So we're in a seven-week period now. Seven times seven. And those of us who are a little savvy, we know that this is what they call the spheres. Yeah, there are in fact ten spheres, which is one of those words you cannot translate. Emanations, spheres, I don't know what, what word you translate, it, it doesn't mean anything. Spheres are something that's, that's just different, you know. People work really hard to translate words that have no translation, like kalim. How do you translate kalim? Take a look, vessels. That, that's, those, those are boats. <laughs> no, one, no one at the dinner table says, could you pass me a vessel? You know what I mean? Nobody has a vessel. You know, well, we had to try to find a word, you know. You know, if you hear people translate tefillin as phylacteries, do you really think there's anybody who doesn't know what tefillin are and know what phylacteries are, you know? What are those? Tefillin, what? Phylacteries. Oh, why didn't you say so, you know? You know, it's, it's this sense of, of, of translation. Translation makes absolutely no sense. Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel. Who sticks an O in the middle of a sentence? You know what I mean? <laughs> hear, O Israel. What is this Irish? You know, like, you know. Oh, Israel. <laughs> you know. So uh, I, I don't know how you translate spheres in, in real life. There, there's these ten levels that Hashem built into creation. The top three, which are hard to access. The bottom seven. 
They represent parts of the body, chesed, gvura, right? They represent parts of the body. They represent people, the Roet Zon, who we know from the Ushbizen, Avram, Yitzhak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Yosef, and David, represent the lower spheres, chesed, gvura, teferis, netzach, hod, yesod, and malchus. They represent the seven kochve leches, the seven heavenly bodies you can see with the naked eye, the sun, the moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. The seventh is Saturn. What's it called in the Gemara? Shabtai. From the word Lashon of Shabbos. That's why it has a ring around it. That's the crown that the king gets. Because the seventh level is Malchus. They represent the days of the week. Sunday, Moon Day, Saturn Day. Yeah? Those are the only three that work out. You know, The other four are named after Norse gods. So uh, there's Thor's Day and Iron Man Day and whatever it is. There's, there's different days that they stick in over there that have to do with this one's Odin and this one's his wife Freya and this is uh, Loki and whatever it is. But those are named after the Norse gods. So, um, uh, but you can see it at least Sunday, Moon Day, Saturn Day. There's the, these seven fill everything. These are these seven uh, things. And a quick note. The number seven in Judaism is not the number seven. If you want to say a lot, you say seven. Seven roads will chase your enemies, or if in the curses, seven roads they'll chase you, and you'll run away on seven roads. Seven is just a lot. When we say seven, says the Maharal, seven is really six and one. This world is six, four directions up and down. Seven is what fills it and gives it purpose. I thought I was the only one who gave this marshal. I heard Robertson Heller give it once, you know. Um, it's the little ball that lets the Rubik's Cube turn around. Yeah? The Rubik's Cube, in order for it to move, obviously, the six sides are connected in the middle by a little ball. That's what lets everything move. When you have six sides, each one has a, an aspect, and the point in the middle brings it all together. That's what seven always is. Six days you will work, and on the seventh day, it's not another day, you enjoy that which you earned on the other six days. Six years you work, and on the seventh day, you take it in. Which means, Shabbos is the result of an entire week of preparation. And without those six days of preparation, you don't have a Shabbos. Now, the Hasidisha story, I heard this from the present Boston Rebbe, Mayor Horowitz. He... Um, one of the Boston Rebbes. You know, Boston is great because everybody can become a Rebbe. You know, it's, they have this thing. I had two guys in my house from the Mir. They were both the sons of the Boston Rebbe in Far Rockaway, who was the son of the Boston Rebbe in New York, as opposed to the Boston Rebbe in Harnof, who was originally the son of the Boston Rebbe in Boston. And his son and son-in-law became rebbes, and his grandsons became rebbes. And everybody in, in Boston, anyone who wants to become a rebbe, you know. And I have these two guys in my house, and I was like, "Wait a second! So you guys are both going to be rebbes?" I was like, uh, "Yeah, I guess so." You know, and, you know, I said, "So can I give you a kvittel now, and you'll hold on to it? Do you become a rebbe? I'll get it on the ground floor." <laughs> and they were like, "Okay." Anyway, so <laughs> so may I was told the story. It's a chassidic story. I don't remember who it was with. I, I, I apologize. I get my my rebbes mixed up. Yeah. So um, uh, these Hasidim come to the Rebbe and they said, Rebbe, you know, we want to feel Shabbos like you do. He says, no, you don't. 
He says, yes, yes, we want to feel Shabbos like you do. We see the Kedusha, we see the light on your face. We want to feel Shabbos like you do. He says, trust me, you don't want this. He says, yes, I do. He says, okay, I give you a bracha, you should experience Shabbos like I do. Fine. The next day was Yom Rishon, it was Sunday. And the two of them are looking at each other, they're filled with such joy and such happiness. Comes Monday, they're ecstatic. They're over the top. Comes Tuesday, they can't go on. They're frozen. Go back to the Reverend and say, make it stop. He says, no, that's the Pasuk. Ritzon Yerayav Yaseh. You do the will of those who fear you. Yeah? And then you hear their tefillah and you save them. Because sometimes we ask for something and we're not ready for it. And sometimes we think that, you know, ah, just Shabbos, I'll just get Shabbos the way that I want to get Shabbos. It takes preparation. It's not easy to be able to do it right. person wants to experience it. This is a story that is mind-blowing. There's this idea that you can go to the Kaisal for 40 days. It's, a, it's got a, a real Masayra. Yeah? And you can dive it for something. 40 days straight, you'll get it. So the girl in the Shalayim, she wanted to dive in with Kavana. That was her wish. And so she starts going to the Kaisal every day, dive in Kavana. And day 28, she stops. She says, I can't go on. She says, why? Because... I've reached the point where I open the sitter and I start shaking and sobbing. I can't even get the words out. You know, to, you want to really daven with kavana? Do you know what that means to daven with kavana? Achazanich wasn't allowed to daven. They were afraid he would die when he would daven. You know, because his heart wasn't strong enough to handle his tefillahs. You know, you read in the Gemara, you know, Rabbi Kiva would say Shemana Esrei and he would, you know, finish and find himself on the other side of a river. You know, it was just to be able to lose yourself in tefillah. You know, to be able to really appreciate Shabbos, it takes preparation. Right? I'll give you an example. We don't build the Mishkan on Shabbos. Why? Because obviously, Shabbos is the Mishkan. When the Mishkan is in place, the base of Mikdash is in place, Shabbos is in time. You can reach that level of going to the base of Mikdash by being on Shabbos. You don't build it on Shabbos because Shabbos is the Mishkan in time, just like everything in this world is time and place. So, I see people go to the Kaisal for the first time. They go to the Kaisal. And they've worked it up in their mind already. They're going to approach the wall and the angels are going to begin to sing. And the clouds will part and a ray of light will shine upon me. And I'll touch the wall and I'll feel a connection to 2,000 years of Jewish history as the tears begin to flow. Well, that's some pressure you just put on yourself. So instead people get there and it looks a lot like a wall. An old wall, but, you know. This guy over here is crying and shaking. I don't know what's wrong with him. I'm moving over a little bit, you know. Get away from me. I gave you already, you know. I wonder what this person wants, you know. I think it's in French. You know. And we're waiting for the inspiration. It, it, it's not, it, it, there's no magic in the place. You have to prepare yourself. And, and the, when there was a base of Mikdash, there was a place outside of Yerushalayim where people would stop and meditate before they entered Yerushalayim. Because you cannot just walk into Yerushalayim. You have to stop and prepare yourself. 
They used to say about Rav Gusman that he was afraid to fly. I don't know if it's true or not. But whenever he had to go to America and back to Israel, he always took a boat. <laughs> Never fly. So they said to him, Rebbe, you're afraid to fly? Because why? You think 12 hours is enough time to prepare to go to Eretz Shell? I need a lot of time to prepare myself. <laughs> you know? So how do we walk at the Shabbos? I'm not speaking about anybody in particular here. You know, I'm sure we've read about this in, in magazine articles. You know, so. Are you coming out? I gotta go in there and have a show yet. Come on, it's all the Shabbos. Gotta get out. What are you doing over there? I'm the other over there. <laughs> Mother has to light candles. Her hair is wet. She's running. You know, I got like candles. Her hair is all the Shabbos. Are you guys doing crazy? Look at all the Shabbos. You guys crazy? Ah, <laughs> oh, Shabbos. When Shabbos comes in, we're supposed to prepare. You know what the Chadodiri is? They used to in Sfas, they would go out hours before into the fields and wait to greet the Shabbos. It's based on the Gemara and Shabbos. They'd go out to greet the Shabbos. I'm almost old. I'm trying. I can't get there. <laughs> My youngest is, is, still, is still nine, you know. My oldest is over 30, but, but my youngest is still nine, and, you know, it's hard. I'm waiting to reach that point when I can be like those grandparents I used to stay with when I was in Israel as a bacher. You know, you come there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and the whole place is already set for Shabbos. And the blech is there, you know, and the board is hot, you know, and the grandfather already came back from the mikveh, he's learning parasha. And the bubba is sitting there saying to him, and, and you come in, they give you a cup of tea and a piece of kakish, you know what I mean? And you sit down and you just, everyone's just sitting there waiting for Shabbos, you know? I'm not there yet, you know? <laughs> but it's such a beautiful thing to see, you know? You just, we're, we're sitting here waiting for Shabbos. We've prepared ourselves, we thought about it. It's something that comes in. It's something that needs preparation. It's only going to be Shabbos if there were six days when I prepared for it. I have to work on this. And if I don't work to invest in it, I don't make it something. So think about what I can do to make my Shabbos better. Right? We heard some suggestions already about buying special treats and things like that but you know think about your Shabbos table you know is my Shabbos table a fun place I had, I had an Avreich ask me once he says how do I make my children sit at the Shabbos table I said I don't it's a privilege to sit at the Shabbos table you know why wouldn't you want to sit at the Shabbos table you know there's something wrong with the Shabbos table if nobody wants to sit there nobody wants to be there it's not fun you know it's not enjoyable I had my daughter who just got married when she was in, I think, fourth grade. A teacher used to give her these sheets. We found it was coming from a book called, I think, Otiot Mechakmeni or something. I think that was what it was called. It's 22 questions on the parasha Lafidi Aleph Beis. The answer to the first question is Aleph, and then Beis, and then Gimel. You know, we went out and bought the book, and we would sit at the Shabbos table. You know, by now everybody knows all the answers. I mean, the question is who can spit it out faster? You know what I mean? You know, but you ask these questions and they're like, you know, you know it adds a certain element. They have this mitzah, you know, the, the girls in eighth grade have to learn two prakim perkyavas. 
So, Baruch Hashem, I've got eight girls. So, we have more or less Pirkei Avos covered, you know. <laughs> so, when we learn Pirkei Avos, you know, I, I, I don't even know how to learn it anymore. Ezu Chacham, Halonei Mikol Adam. Shinamar, Me'amad, Good. Yeah, Good. Yeah, we just go through the Mishnah and I started off and they go zooming. It's Kavaldic, you know, it's like very easy. I don't even need the, the text in front of me, you know. And, and you know, it's, it's interesting. And when I don't do that, I just ask questions. I just ask questions, you know. Not questions like, where in the parsha does it say? Questions like, you know, should you raise your kids only in a firm neighborhood so that they don't get exposed to outside influence? Or do you want them someplace where they can be on other people so that they'll be stronger in their own beliefs? You know how much kids like to hear themselves talk? <laughs> I'm sure you don't know, but take my word for it, yeah? And they all start arguing, they all start discussing, and when I told this over the people, they said, so what did you tell them in the end? I said, nothing. I didn't tell them anything. The whole point is that I want to hear what they have to say. You know? And don't worry about it. When it comes time to making actual decisions, I imagine we'll have a discussion on it, you know? But everybody has opinions, people want to talk, it should be exciting. Something's a little too exciting. <laughs> Never this, this, this people who knew me from, they had heard me speak someplace. I don't know if I mentioned I'm a world famous speaker. So uh, this couple heard me and they were coming down to our house. And unfortunately, a couple of my kids were in Shidduchim and we were discussing red lines. <laughs> that's a red line, you know? I was like, that's not a red line. Oh my gosh, everybody was getting so upset, you know? These people came in, they sat there for a few minutes and like, I think we'll go. <laughs> Because I'm probably the quietest one in my family. You know, people have a lot of personality. So uh, they have very strong opinions. It's Kavaldic. Nobody wants to leave the Shabbos table. If I'm making a Shabbos table that people don't want to sit at, then I'm doing something wrong. I have to sit down and figure out how I can make my Shabbos table a place that people want to be at, that people want to enjoy. You know? We all know this. There, there are certain places who, you know, the kids, you know, bench as quickly as they can and they go to somebody else's house, you know, for Shabbos. You know, for, for, they catch the end of the, their suda. What's going on at their suda? It's not going on at mine. How come everyone's not coming to my house? You know? So th- that's a question. The person has to ask themselves, how do I make sure that my Shabbos table, my Shabbos meals are as meaningful as can be? This is an opportunity. We have an opportunity. And... Uh, it's sad. It's a sad opportunity, but it's an important opportunity. Because basically, we're all pretty sure we're going to live forever. Nobody, nobody really thinks they're going to die. You know? I don't, I don't mean to get morbid, but let's, let's be honest. My father always wanted to become a Shamashamas. He was in the flower business, and the flower business, the busiest day was Saturday. And he used to say to me, What could I do? My kids will keep Shabbos, you know, I, I can't. You know? Sent us off to yeshiva, you know, I, I can't. He had a massive heart attack. Um, the doctors said, uh, they did an angiogram, and they found that his uh, arteries were 90% blocked. Uh, I'm sorry, 98% blocked. He was getting 2% blood flow to the heart. They say he needs an emergency triple bypass, but... In the state that he's in now, he'll die. We have to wait till he stabilizes, but he's not going to stabilize. So you might as well say goodbye. 
So we looked around and we found a cardiologist, we found a surgeon who was willing to do it. Willing to do the surgery. And uh, that's when I got, you know, when that point came, I said, I'm flying in to be with my father. And I fly in. No one meets me at the airport, obviously. You know, the whole family's in crisis mode, you know. I rent the car, I drive right to the hospital. And uh, the doctor's standing outside of his room shaking his head. He said, it's a miracle. I was sure he was going to die on the table. I didn't think there was a chance he was going to survive. He lived. You know, go talk to him. You know? And when my father realized how close he came at that moment to dying, he said, If not now, when? And he decided then he was going to become Shema Shabbos. And uh, we lived in a little town called North Merrick, Long Island. Uh, the nearest shul was a mile and a quarter away. And my father walked every Shabbos after his heart attack, when he, they let him out, a mile and a quarter to go to shul. And one week there was a snowstorm. And he couldn't go. And he was so upset, he said to my mother, that's it, we're moving. They had lived in this house for over 35 years, you know. That's it, we're moving. Three of my brothers lived in West Hampstead. He looked around, and he was looking for a house. He told the real estate agent, I have to be able to walk to shore in a snowstorm. That's my only consideration. He bought this house that was a run-down piece of junk. I look, I go, he looks, I go to look at the house. I said, Mom, you're going to live here? He says, I can't talk to him. When I say anything, he says, look, the shul's right over there. You know? My father comes and he says, oh, how do you like the house? I said, um, he said, look, the shul's right over there. I said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know? He ended up putting more money into the house than he paid for it, because otherwise my mother wouldn't live there. You know what I mean? Anyway, a few months later, you know, I, uh, I called my mother. I said, how's it going? You know? She says, it's like living with the Pope, she says to me. <laughs> Every two minutes he's making a bracha, he's going to shul, he's doing this, you know, I guess, you know? I said, but how do you like it? She says, what do you mean? For the first time in my life, I have a life. You know, we have people over Shabbos, the grandchildren come over. One of, my, one of my nieces said to me, oh yeah, we go over in Grandma and Grandpa's house on Shabbos, you know, Grandma makes challenge, you know, and Grandpa plays bingo with us. I said, one second, these are the same people who told me that if I put on a blech, I'm going to burn down the house, you know what I mean? And now they're Bobby and Zadie, you know, playing bingo with the children, you know what I mean? How did this happen, you know? So he says, uh, that's, how we, that's how we see them. And I say, Mom, are you happy? He said, I've never been happier. And the sad part of the story was he had to wait till he almost died to wake up. Or Hashem. We're, we, we have, I don't know everybody in the room, but you know, we have our health. We're, we're going to be around for a while. We saw a tragedy, and unfortunately, tragedy is what motivates us. You know, good times should motivate us. And they can motivate us. My father kept Shabbos right up until the end of May. The end of May, there is a day in America called Mother's Day. This is the Yom Kippur of the flower business. There are florists that do the majority of their business on Mother's Day weekend. That Friday, Saturday, Sunday is the three busiest days of the whole year. My father couldn't stand up to the sign. He said to me, David, God will understand. Okay, that wasn't a question, so I didn't say anything. He calls me back a few days later. He says, it must be pretty important to God that I keep this Shabbos. I said, you mean because he wrote in the Ten Commandments? He says, no. I said, you mean because it's punishable by stoning? No, 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 no that's not why. <laughs> he had bought the building that his business was in. And all the businesses applied for moving costs. 
So my father said, well, I'm one of the businesses. I'm entitled to moving costs. And his lawyer said to him, Marty, you're not moving. <laughs> he said, so what? I'm applying for the moving costs. The lawyer said, there's not a chance. And that Thursday before Mother's Day, he got a check, a very large check from the city for moving costs, which the lawyer couldn't believe. And that gave him the chizik to keep that Shabbos of Mother's Day and every Shabbos until the end of his life. Sometimes good things motivate us. Sometimes never bad things motivate us. And if it takes a heart attack, it takes almost dying, it takes people dying, that's one way. If it's because we can see the beauty of Shabbos and see how beautiful a, a, a Shabbos table can be, if we can see how wonderful Shabbos is, then we shouldn't need tragedy to make us take Shabbos and make it into the most beautiful experience that we can. In Hashem, every one of us is going to use this opportunity in our own way to mechazek our Shabbos until we look around and we say, wow, this is the Shabbos that I always wanted. This is the Shabbos that other people want to come to my house to see. This is the Shabbos that's going to take me into the Shabbos of Olam Thank you very much.